The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to SWOutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Hey, guys. Man, it's awesome to be here with you guys. Uh, My name's Spencer, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, I've been at Snowbird for 22 years, so... But this is my favorite thing that we do. Um, I, I love the men's conference. So uh, it was my birthday day before yesterday. Thank you, thank you. I am 44 years old now, which is uh, no longer a young man. It's just man. Uh, and so I uh, turning 44. You know, you're in your mid 40s now, and I also have a kid in high school now. And so. To me, I'm kind of just leaning into the old man game. Uh, so I, I don't know how many of you guys are there, but I'm looking forward to it. I, my kids already make fun of, like, I fall asleep in literally every movie we watch. And so my kids are already like, you're such an old man. I'm like, absolutely. You know, so I'm not yet at the point where, you know, some of my friends are, uh, will come into work and they will have, like, thrown their back out or something. And I'll be like, what'd you do? And I'm like, I don't know. I sneezed. I don't know. It's just out. So I'm not there yet, but I will tell you the most embarrassing old man thing that I'm doing right now on purpose uh, is I'm smoking uh, like meats, not, you know, smoking meats. Uh, So like I got a grill and smoking meats and stuff. And so it's great because a lot of my friends also are doing that. So we got like a old man's club where we're barbecuing, you know, and um, so, well, we're talking about the favorite things to smoke and this and that, and uh, so someone decided, oh, well, the best thing to do would just be to share the favorite things that we smoke on, like, a Google Drive, and I had a little check in my spirit, you know, just kind of like, hmm, okay, uh, but I went along with it, and it's actually really great until my wife looks over my shoulder one day. I'm looking at my laptop on the, my Google Drive, and she says, oh, do you have a recipe book with your little buddies? And I was like... No, uh, but kind of, <laughs> and it's awesome, so if anybody wants in, um, but one, one thing that I refuse to do is I, <clears throat> I refuse to be that guy that watches a movie and is constantly going, now wait, who's this? Okay, pause. Now, w- where did he come from, and what's his story? Y- y'all all have friends like that? If not, you're the guy. Like, <laughs> if you don't know who it is, is he? But, like, I refuse to be that guy. But this week, I promise, when I'm studying the, the story of Jonathan, I kind of felt like that because I kept looking for an intro. Like, all right, where do they introduce Jonathan? Like, uh, this is Jonathan, the son of Saul. Well, as I'm studying it, it doesn't really introduce Jonathan. But the way the intro rolls out even the intro tells us what sort of man Jonathan is. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the life of Jonathan. Jesus, I pray that you would guide and guard my mouth. Uh, God, that I would say things that are from your word and from your spirit. I pray that for all of us that this would be profitable and beneficial, that we'd be closer to you in 30 minutes than we are right now. Um, Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So let me tell you the story of Jonathan, the son of Saul. All right, you can follow along in your Bible. We're going to be jumping a lot, but we'll be in 1 Samuel. We're going to start out in 1 Samuel chapter 13. All right, so the first time we see Jonathan, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 2. All right, so we're kind of jumping into the story, and it says this. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. 
And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. That's the first time Jonathan's mentioned. Did you notice there's no great intro? We're not really told Jonathan, the son of Saul. There's no accolades, but this is the prince. Like, he is the son of the first king. It's so interesting that he's not announced as Saul's son the first time we see him. It's just like, it's kind of like the scene fades up, just like he's always been there. We're catching up with him at work already, where he's already leading a thousand men in the battle. Now, it does seem kind of vanilla as far as intros go, especially for someone who's royal. And it also, the, the battle narrative seems kind of vanilla as well. So what I want to do is I want to pause right there and I want to rewind, go back to Saul's intro. Because we need to get some context to why the intro for Jonathan's like this. You know, when we're studying through the life of Jonathan, there's really a huge spotlight on Saul. And then there's a huge spotlight later on David. And when we're studying about Jonathan, we gotta just see little, little snippets kind of behind the spotlight of what sort of man he is. So let's go back in contrast and look at when Saul is introduced, all right? When Saul is introduced, Remember, he's going to be the first king. The people have asked, we want a king so we can be like the other nations. We want a king that's going to fight our battles for us, which is a rejection of God because God's the one who's fought their battles so far. And so they're saying, we don't want to be governed by God. We need salvation through better governance. Uh, And so basically when Saul's introduced, we're told a lot about him. It says that Saul is the son of Kish, and Kish was a very wealthy man. So we see first that Saul's rich, and it says that Saul is literally head and shoulders taller than every man in the land. Must be nice. I mean, like, the next tallest guy comes up to here. And we're also told that Saul is literally the most handsome man in the whole country. Must be nice. Like, he's got a lot going on for him. He's rich. He's tall. He's handsome. In worldly eyes, he is the best candidate for king. All right. So God had already told Samuel in 1 Samuel 9, 16. We'll have all these scriptures on the board. Don't worry about flippity-flipping, all right? So 1 Samuel 9, 16, it says, uh, God told Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'm gonna send you to a man from the land of Benjamin, and you will anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So when Saul's anointed, he's the first king, right? And you you can picture Samuel. He's always wrapped in a robe, right? And he's given instructions to Saul right after he anoints him. So I don't know if he's looking up at giant, you know, King Saul or if Saul's still kneeling down. So he's about eye level, but Samuel's wrapped in his robe and he's going to give him instructions. And so he anoints Saul and he gives him three signs and two instructions, all right? Three signs and two instructions, all right? Here's how it goes. He says, Saul, I'm going to anoint you. You're going to be the first king over Israel. And here's how you know that what I'm saying is true. When you leave here, you're going to see three signs. The first one is you're going to pass two guys, and here's what they're going to say to you. And he, he kind of goes on. He says, then you're going to pass three guys, and they're going to give you two loaves of bread. And then after this, you're going to go to Gibeah, where there's a garrison of Philistines. Pause. A lot of people don't make much of that little mention, but we remember what God's intention for this king was, right? He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And, and in the first intro, uh, Samuel is saying, you're going to go over here, and there's Philistines over here, all right? So the first time you're going to run to these guys. Here's what they'll say. Second one, you're going to run into these guys. They're going to give you bread. You're going to go to where there's Philistines. And then he gives them the third sign, and he says this. There's going to be prophets that are prophesying, and the Spirit of God himself is going to come on you, Saul. That is huge. 
the Holy Spirit is going to rest on Saul. So those are the three signs. Now he gives him two instructions. 1 Samuel 10. These are the instructions that follow the signs. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do. That's the first instruction. And it seems vague, but it's not really. And we'll explain in a second. Now when these signs meet you, he's going to give him two instructions. First one is, do what your hand finds to do because God is with you. Second, then go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I am coming down to offer you burnt offerings and, offer, and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you will wait until I come and show you what you shall do. All right, two instructions. The first one, first, I mean, brand new, fresh new king. His first instruction is, there's a garrison of Philistines at Gibeah. Now that is, y'all don't know, that is deep in, in Israelite territory. The spirit of God is on Saul. The garrison's where he's headed. And Saul is told, do what your hand finds to do. Now, this doesn't really seem like too explicit of an, in, an, an instruction or a command. It almost seems like, do whatever you want. But in Hebrew, the meaning is really explicitly military in other places in Scripture. In Judges 9, Abimelech is told this. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, do to them what your hand finds to do. It is an explicit military term here. And a lot of these guys, it seems like, what Saul's supposed to do as soon as the Spirit of God rushes on him is he's supposed to go save God's people from the Philistines. The second instruction, after Saul deals with the Philistines, he's supposed to head to Gilgal. And there he's got to wait seven days. Once he gets there, the counter starts. Count seven days, and Samuel is going to come to Saul. Don't do anything. Don't do anything until seven days pass. I'm going to offer sacrifices. Don't do anything. Got it? Seven days. Wait seven days. All right. Lost my place. Here we go. Here we go. All right. So Saul leaves Samuel, and basically everything plays out just like Samuel said. He walks out, and oh, here comes two guys, and they say the thing to him, and he's like, oh, my gosh. And then he runs into three guys, and two loaves of bread? Sure, I'll take that. And then he goes and prophesies, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God comes on him, and Saul prophesies. And what's supposed to happen after he's empowered by the Lord? He's supposed to hit Philistines and then Gilgal. What does happen? Well, he prophesies, but then he doesn't do what his hand finds to do, which seems to indicate military action. See, the people don't know what to make of this. They, they say, okay, Saul's prophesying. Is he a prophet now? Like, wh what's he doing? They're confused, just like we, the reader, are confused by that whole scene. Like, he just goes and prophesies and kind of fades off. All right, fast forward. Back to Jonathan. Back to this intro in chapter 13. By the time we get to chapter 13, Saul has 3,000 men that are fit for war. Commentators say that it's probably about a year after that initial uh, command. 3,000 men fit for the war. Now, 2,000 are with Saul and 1,000 are with Jonathan. So maybe it's finally time to deal with this garrison because it seems like some time has passed. Now, Jonathan's at Gibeah, but the garrison has moved from Gibeah three miles northeast to Geba. But most commentators believe this, these are the same guys that Saul was supposed to deal with. And here's what we read as Jonathan's intro. Jonathan defeats the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. See what happened? Like, finally, the instructions carried out, it seems, but not directly by Saul. It's by Jonathan. 
Not a lot's made out of this fact, but it's incredible that the first time we see Jonathan, he's doing what it seemed like his dad should have done. He is carrying out obedience. The implication, it seems, is that Jonathan is fearless and obedient, and Saul is hesitant to obey, or he's partially obedient, and that's going to be a theme throughout their whole lives. At least Saul isn't leading the charge of obedience. That's something that Jonathan becomes known for. So Saul blows this horn, and he's like, let the Hebrews hear. We defeated the Philistines, and all the Hebrews are like, Saul did it. Saul did it. Kind of. I mean, kind of Saul did it, but it was really Jonathan that did it, but whatever. But it's not just the Hebrews that hear. Because you remember what the second instruction was. One was defeat the Philistines, do what your hand finds to do. The second one was go to Gilgal and wait. Wait seven days. Seven days. Don't do anything. I'm going to come and offer sacrifices. Well, Saul seems to remember this. He seems to remember, oh, Gilgal. We got to go to Gilgal. So he goes to Gilgal, but what, what Samuel didn't tell him was the tiny detail that basically Jonathan, by defeating the Philistines, he basically kicked a hornet's nest. And now all these Philistines start pouring out of everywhere and they start surrounding the town of Gilgal. And it's, I mean, it's an enormous army. Y'all remember how many guys are with Israel? 3,000. Well, the Philistines come and they surround the town of Gilgal and the verse says that the Philistines brought 30,000 chariots not men, 30,000 like weaponized, armored chariots, like 30,000 chariots. They also brought 6,000 men on horseback. And then it says they brought troops like the sand of the seashore. And they're just, I mean, just this enormous, innumerable army just closing in on Gilgal. And Saul is thinking, Samuel did not say this. He did not, I mean, seven days, though, seven days. And Saul, to his credit, he waits. He seems to remember that, like, oh, gosh, i got to wait seven days. Well, during this time, you start to see that basically the Israelites, those 3,000 guys, they're getting freaked out, as they should, and they start leaving. They start going over the border. Some of them are literally hiding in holes, hiding in caves. And Saul is left at the end of those seven days. He's left with 600 guys. It is a desperate situation. 600 surrounded by just an ocean of men and he's going oh Samuel Samuel whoo exactly he's like Samuel come on man you get man you got to come in seven days and seven days and seven days and we're also told the Israelites those 600 guys had zero weapons they had two in the whole land Saul had a sword and Jonathan had a sword the rest of the guys have like shovels you know like an axe I, I don't know what they have but it wasn't much it is a desperate situation and so Saul's like all right Seven days are up. We, we got to go. We're about to get slaughtered. And so Saul basically disobeys. He disobeys and he performs a burnt offering. Hey, I mean, he's got no other option, right? Really, I mean, we got to do this now. And I know I got to seek the favor of the Lord first. It's seemingly the right heart, but the wrong action. Maybe he's thinking, man, God will forgive this. He partially obeyed. As soon as he's done offering the sacrifice, you know what happens? Samuel shows up. And he says, you're a fool. You didn't obey, and so now the kingdom is going to go to another. And that is huge. I think we do well to be warned that one act of disobedience can have huge consequences. Now, obviously, we're, if you're a Christian, we're under God's grace, and his grace is covering us. But even just the warning from Scripture that, I mean, here, Saul, this one act of disobedience, he says the kingdom's going to leave you. It's huge. We see this pattern start emerging of Saul not obeying. And so chapter 14, after this, after the sacrifice, 
well, okay, great, the huge army's still out there. And you know what Saul does? He goes up on the hill and he sits under a pomegranate tree and he starts just eating fruit, <laughs> just like nothing's going on, like he's just hiding out under this pomegranate tree. And do you know who goes to war? Jonathan. It is a crazy story. We're going to talk about that story on Sunday morning. Birdie's going to go in detail on that story. But let me just hit the high point that Jonathan basically turns to his friend, the armor bearer, and he says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That is deeper than courage. That is faith. It's deeper than courage. So Jonathan leads this fearless charge, just him and his armor bearer. It's such a contrast from Saul, right? And we'll look at that story on, on Sunday. But basically, Jonathan goes up there, leads this charge, and when the battle jumps up, Saul's scrambling. He's still back up here at the pomegranate tree just trying to figure out, oh, shoot, like what are Y'all been there before when the alarm goes off late and you're like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, you know, you're trying to go brush your teeth real quick. It's like Saul's scrambling, like, we're, we're at war? Who went? Who, oh, we got to go, we got to go. And he jumps up and he yells to the priest, hey, let's get the ark over here. We need God's blessing. Hey, bring the, you know what? Forget about that. We ain't got time. We got to go. We don't need God's blessing on this. Saul should have led that charge. He's up there eating pomegranates. He, d- he doesn't even know what's going on on the front lines. He joins far too late. See, Jonathan is emerging as consistently obedient. But a theme for Saul's uh, is emerging as well. Obeys partially or obeys late. Now, I want to just kind of rapid fire a few stories here to think about this history. Remember, we're telling the story of Jonathan, the son of Saul. And we got to look in between Saul and David to see Jonathan sometimes. But this pattern is emerging where Jonathan has faith and is obedient and Saul is partially obedient or obedient late. Chapter 15, y'all remember this story? You remember the, the, the Amalekites? Remember, uh, Saul is told, hey, this is an old debt. The Amalekites have done my people wrong, God says. I want you to go destroy every single one of them. Don't leave anyone alive. And what does Saul do? He destroys the trash and keeps the goods, right? He brings it, brings it back when, Saul, when Samuel comes to Saul. It makes, it makes Samuel so mad because Saul's like, hey, brother. I perform the commandment of the Lord. It's Samuel has that famous line where he's like, then what's the sheep I hear? What are the oxen that I hear? What, what have you done? And Saul shifts the blame and said, oh, I killed everything. The people, they saved some stuff. The good stuff, it was for the Lord. You know, they saved stuff for the Lord. And Saul's kingdom is going to be ripped away as a consequence. Saul obeys partially. That's really a rejection of God. Saul rejects God, and God rejects Saul from being king. And so another king, David, is anointed in chapter 16. Now, this is a second spotlight, right? This is who the kingdom is going to go to. Y'all remember the Goliath incident, obviously the most, second most famous story in Scripture? We know soon after these events where Saul, again, is partially obedient. Soon after these events, David did what Saul should seemingly have done. You've got a giant, the champion of the Philistines. And on this side in Israel, you have a giant, head and shoulders taller than everybody. But it's the boy David that steps up in obedience while Saul shrinks back. 
just like he's prone to do. All right, here's the next time we see Jonathan, right after the David and Goliath story. You know, we, see, we only see Jonathan in glimpses that are often subtle, but they're always powerful. We got to look behind the spotlight. So when David kills Goliath, you remember Saul loves David. He brings David into the palace, moves him in, and do you remember the promotion that David gets? He has been too young to be in the army, and now Saul promotes him in charge of all of the armies. Like his brothers were just making fun of him, and now he's the brother's boss. Like he's in charge of all the armies, right? Can we just pause for a second and think about Jonathan? What would a normal human response be? This kid? You're, you're going to think about what your reaction would be. If you're Jonathan, you are next in line for the throne. You have fought actual battles out there. You have been faithful with the pomegranate situation. You have been faithful with the garrison of the Philistines. And it's like, uh, Dad, you know, I've fought in actual battles. I'm in line to be the next king, you know. Here's what's fascinating. It doesn't happen like that. David and Jonathan quickly get close because in David, Jonathan sees a man empowered with and anointed by the Spirit of God. John's going to talk about this tomorrow morning, but Jonathan makes a covenant with David, and these two grow really close. Jonathan even, right after the Goliath situation, Jonathan gives his royal robes to David, even his royal weapons, his armor, his weapons. He loves David like his own soul. And what's crazy is, man, David stands to take away everything Jonathan has. Th- th- just think about it. Who's the champion of the Philistines, like against the Philistines thus far? It's Jonathan. And David stands to take that title away from him. Who's next in line to be king? Don't think Jonathan hadn't filled those gaps in yet, hadn't connected those dots. I mean, David stands to take away everything Jonathan has. David is a superstar when he returns from killing Goliath. He saved Israel from slavery. When he comes back, y'all remember this story, like Jonathan's knit to David, but you remember the story when David comes back and they're kind of going through visiting, like as they're coming back from war, it's almost like a Super Bowl parade, right? Where, where the Super Bowl winners come back to their hometown and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the women are singing this song where they're like, Saul has killed his thousands and David's killed 10,000s. That's a problem because not only are they not giving God the glory, for Saul, there's a bigger problem. 1 Samuel 18, 8, Saul gets driven insane with jealousy, and he says, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. What more can he have but the whole kingdom? See, Saul's filling in these gaps with just human wisdom. 18, 9 is a key verse. It says, and Saul eyed David from that day forward. You see, the song was a catalyst. That was a start, and we'll see that this jealous fear starts to burn in Saul. From the moment he heard that song, it drove him crazy. Now, the spotlight's on Saul and David a lot in this story, but I want you to see glimpses of Jonathan's faithfulness, of his his humility, of his friendship. But Saul is so tore up by David's fame. You know, right after this, he actually tries to murder David twice. David's playing his guitar in the house, and Saul's so mad about the song the next day, he's just like, Wah! and just throws a spear at David trying to pin him to the wall. Now, we don't have time to go into all these stories, but from this point on, Saul goes from a character who's partially obedient to one who is wildly disobedient. 
Pick it up in 1 Samuel 18, 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. It's a big demotion. And David went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of David. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in from before him. You see, Saul demotes David, and he's afraid of David, obviously because the Spirit of God had left Saul at this point, the Spirit that came on right after his anointing. The Spirit of God had left Saul, but really he's afraid of David, and this verse says for two reasons that he should have been really happy about. He's afraid of David because the Lord is with him and because he was successful. If you're a king, that is exactly what you want in your military leader. You want the Lord to be with him and for him to be successful. But man, Saul chooses to see these blessings as a threat. He's jealous. Chapter 19, we start to see Saul getting more bold. He's trying over and over now to kill David. And he goes to Jonathan. Here's where we get to Jonathan again. And Saul speaks to Jonathan and all his servants. And he says, you need to kill David. I want you, Jonathan, to kill David. At this point, Saul's already tried to murder David himself. He's already tried to use the Philistines to murder David. And now he's trying to tell his son, man, just imagine this conversation between Saul and his son, Jonathan. Jonathan, my faithful son, fighter of my battles. I have another enemy for you. I want you to kill David. A lesser man would have obeyed that command. You think about it. This is a culture where family means everything. Jonathan has everything to lose. He risks everything. If he gets kicked out of this family, he is done. But instead, Jonathan warns David of his father's intentions. And then Jonathan actually in this conversation with Saul, he sticks up for David and says, man, David's brought you nothing but good. He risked his life to save your kingdom. This is crazy because if anybody should have been jealous, it's Jonathan. It's Jonathan. But they have unity when there's every reason in the world for rivalry. Saul listens to his son for a minute and says, as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. But we know after this, it's murder attempt after murder attempt after murder attempt over and over and over. Here's what's fascinating to think about. It's fascinating that Jonathan hitches himself to the Lord's anointed. Like humanly speaking, there's no explanation for Jonathan's friendship with David, for, for this connection. Because you think about, yeah, initially David's really successful and it seems like there's a clear path to the throne right right after he kills Goliath and now he's escalated into being in charge of the whole army like right after Goliath for sure but after a while opposition grows and David does not look like the king anymore that path doesn't even look possible yet Jonathan not only follows David the king but when you get to chapter 20 Jonathan's actually rescinding his throne and giving it to David He's refusing his royal inheritance and giving it to David because he believes David is truly God's anointed. Let's read 1 Samuel 20, starting in verse 13. Look at what Jonathan says to David. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. Why does he word it like that? He's thinking of him as king. He's not saying, may the Lord be with you as he's been with me. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I'm still alive, Jonathan says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. He's thinking of him as king, as if he has the power to not cut off his house or to cut off his house. 
Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. He's given up the throne willingly to David who is living alone in the woods at this point. You think about that? Like David's on the run. He's got no palace. He's got no army. He is literally alone in the woods. And Jonathan's handing over the, the literal kingdom to him. He's handing over riches and fame. Does it seem foolish? Jonathan says it even more explicitly. In chapter 23, he meets up with David, and he says in uh, 23, 17, he says, Don't fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You shall be king over Israel. I'll be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. That's not foolishness. That's faith. That's faith. It's strong faith. Back in chapter 20, Jonathan's covering for David, trying to give him a head start. He's going to lie to Saul to try to cover for David, but Saul doesn't believe him because he knows that Jonathan and David are really close. And basically Saul, he thinks Jonathan's lying to me, and so he explodes on his son Jonathan. He says this in chapter 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Imagine him screaming at this point. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? And he's screaming, you chose David. He's trying to shame and guilt Jonathan. He says, listen to this, what Saul says to Jonathan. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you or your kingdom will be established. Send and bring him to me, he will surely die. He tries to turn Jonathan against David saying, David's gonna take your throne. We know David is going to be king. It says, then Jonathan answered his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. Things have escalated in a crazy way. It's crazy. Saul is trying to murder his own son. A minute ago, he was acting appalled like, uh, Jonathan, your kingdom won't be established. And now he's going to try to end his kingdom himself. I mean, Saul's on a rampage. He tries to kill everybody that helps David. He's treating his people like his enemies. He's totally unhinged. The last story, bring this to a close, and I want to give some points of application. After this, Saul really starts to spiral the drain. He goes down and does some dark, dark things. And when things get towards the end of Saul's life, he is lost and he's desperate. Chapter 28 tells a really weird story. One of the weirdest stories in the scripture. Saul's lost and he's desperate for guidance. Samuel's off the scene. He's dead. And so Saul visits a witch. Now he's outlawed witchcraft, which is good. <laughs> he's outlawed witchcraft, it's good. Hey, but he goes to a witch and says, I want you to call up the spirit of Samuel from the dead. And the crazy thing is, it happens. And she calls up Samuel from the dead, and Samuel's in this robe, and the lady screams and realizes that it's Saul. And Samuel says to Saul, don't ask me what to do. God has become your enemy. The Lord has torn your kingdom away and given it to David because you didn't obey with Amalek. And Samuel tells Saul, tomorrow... You and your sons will be with me in the grave. Man, the effects of disobedience are sobering. We need to drink that in. We need to feel the weight of that. And know that delayed consequence doesn't mean no consequence. That's big. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me in the grave. 
The next time we see Jonathan is the last time we see Jonathan. Rob's going to talk about this tomorrow night, but he's in battle in chapter 31. My question is, does Jonathan know this is the end? Is he told this day you're going to die? To be honest, I doubt it, but I don't think it would have made any difference. I think Jonathan's the kind of guy that would have gone anyway, and he dies at the hand of the Philistines. That's that's Jonathan's death, but he kind of fades out just like he fades in because the spotlight's on Saul's mess. Saul, you know, he dies in battle too, but he's wounded first by archers, right? And and Rob's going to detail this story, but he asks his armor bearer to finish him off, and the armor bearer wouldn't do it, so Saul ends up committing suicide, but he kind of botches that, and then later on we realize somebody else has got to come do it for him. Jonathan's death's overshadowed by Saul's mess again. But we see that on the hill of Gilboa, Saul, his armor bearer, his sons, Abinadab, Malkishua, and the faithful Jonathan lay dead. Their bodies end up being desecrated. They end up being hung on the wall of Beth Shan. And the faithful Israelites will sneak in and rescue the bodies, which David eventually buries in the land of Benjamin. Thus ends the life of Jonathan, the son of Saul. What are we supposed to get out of this? I want to give a couple, I'm going to give four big thoughts of application that just to kind of open our weekend. First one's this, just think about, Jonathan was aggressively obedient. He was fiercely loyal. He was completely humble. Where did he learn that? You think about that? Where did Jonathan come out like this if his dad's so different? The point one is your dad is not your destiny. Your dad is not your destiny. What do I mean by that? Well, look at Jonathan's story. Saul displays jealousy. Jonathan displays love. Saul displays panic. Jonathan displays trust. Saul was jealous. Jonathan was content. Saul was vengeful when wronged. Jonathan was not even when his dad tries to kill him with a spear. Your dad is not your destiny. What I'm saying is, man, some of you guys did not have faithful fathers. And I hate that. But that doesn't give us a green light for unfaithfulness. Just because our fathers were unfaithful. If Jonathan can be faithful despite this upbringing, so can we. Now, some of you did have faithful fathers. I did. I do. My dad is a faithful follower of Jesus. But that doesn't ensure my obedience. I mean, my time in history is different than Jonathan's, but my calling is the same. Full, faithful obedience. Where did Jonathan learn that? He spent time with the Lord. You don't have that example before you? Spend time with the Lord. Full, faithful obedience. The second point is, I think we learned from Jonathan, full obedience matters. Full obedience matters. Saul, I mean, Saul had some obedient moments. If you think back, he did destroy the garrison of the Philistines. Well, well, not immediately, and really it was not him personally, but he did. He did go to Gilgal, but he, he didn't wait the full seven days. He did bring out the ark. Well, the battle was getting crazy, so he didn't actually seek God. You know, he did destroy the Amalekites, but... You know, not all of them. He did banish witchcraft from the land, but he he did visit a witch in the last days. You see what I'm saying? There's an asterisk beside most of Saul's obedience. Now, Saul likely had good intentions, but we remember what he did. I think Saul likely had good intentions. We all do, but we're going to be remembered for what we do, not what we intended to do. And I think a lesson for us old heads, I think, is, man, don't let the young men outrun us in obedience. You know, we see the story of Saul and all these younger men, David and Jonathan, are outrunning him in obedience where he should have been the leader leading the charge. I told this story a couple years ago, but, you know, there was a time uh, a couple summers ago where 
Man, I, I was sorry. I had slept in a few mornings, hadn't spent time with the Lord, and it was one of these mornings where I was just like stumbling in to get a cup, cup of coffee. I was kind of, uh, you know, my son's 11 now, but he was nine at the time. And I walked past his room, and he's laying in bed studying the book of John. And I saw that, man, I was so happy that he's in there studying. But part of me said, uh-uh, he's not going to lead me. I'm going to lead him. And, and I'm okay, and Brody said this a bunch, I'm okay if sometimes as the leader of my home, if sometimes they're pushing me in the back, you know, and pushing me towards leadership, I'm fine with that. But we need to lead the way in full, faithful obedience. I think one problem for Saul was that he saw strictly as man sees. Wait in Gilgal, you know, common sense says, I'm the leader, we got to move. I'll do the sacrifice. Destroy the Amalekites, you know, common sense says, it'd be a shame to waste all these riches. You see, Saul lacks the faith to fill in the gaps. Point three, there's four. Point three, true faith doesn't see as the world sees. When we see Jonathan, we should see courage, we should see love, we should see optimism. But we should recognize the root of these things is really faith in the Lord. See, Jonathan doesn't just act out of courage, or he doesn't just act out of optimism. Optimism, It's faith, and faith is not like some light, ethereal thing. Faith is weighty. It's the substance of things unseen. That's why so often it seems like Jonathan goes totally opposite human nature. Fight a garrison of soldiers with superior military power? Okay. Charge up the hill with just me and this guy? Man, who knows what the Lord's going to do? Give up your kingdom for a guy on the run? Like hitch, hitch your wagon to God's anointed even when it seems like he might not live to be king? And Jonathan walks by faith even when it looks like it's not all going to work out. Look in the world's eyes and Jonathan's actions seem like foolishness or arrogance. But it's really that Jonathan has faith, which is the real substantive, substantive trust in the unseen power of God. Faith is being certain in the ability of God. Are we, are we certain in the ability of God? Last one. Point number four I think we can get from Jonathan's story is that humility rarely makes the headlines. Humility rarely makes the headlines. Saul, when he quote-unquote destroyed the Amalekites, set up a monument to his own greatness. He didn't deserve that. Now Jonathan deserved monuments, but he passed the accolades on to others. Faithfulness rarely makes a CEO. You, you wouldn't watch a movie about a consistent man, but that's the real hero. See, Jonathan's repeatedly put in difficult situations, but he's consistent and obedient. Man, David could have used a guy like Jonathan later on in his life. You think about, not only did, did Jonathan deserve the throne, he would have made a great king, a much better king than Saul, maybe better than David. See, there's no parade when Jonathan dies. Even in death, he's overshadowed by another, by Saul's screw-up death. We remember David fizzles out at the end of his days. Remember him with warm Abishag in his bed and he's begging his son to do what he swore not to do. I think Jonathan's story is a fade in, fade out with three or four upside down, not what you would expect, walk by faith stories in the middle. These stories are here, men, for us to emulate or avoid. I mean, obviously they're telling the story of God, but they're here for us. We should learn from these stories. When we read 1 Samuel, we should learn that we need to fear sin. We need to fear sin. When we read 1 Samuel, we should grow in our faith. When somebody, if somebody were to say, let me tell you the story of Spencer, the son of Steve, what's going to be said one day? 
It's not over yet. That story's not been written, and yours isn't either. Man, God's mercy is new every morning, and that includes this morning. So I'd say, may it be said of us as it was for Jonathan. He was faithful, obedient, and humble. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.